All right. The sun is shining. Amen. The sun is shining. Y'all remember that uh, cartoon from the 90s, uh, Rockadoodle? Anybody remember that? That's how I felt this week. Like Chanticleer was going to have to sing and bring the sun back. Um, but no, today the sun is shining, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad for it. And I, I want to say welcome to you, um, all City Fellowship members and visitors. Thank you for being here this morning. It's good to be with you. Um, it's, it's an enormous blessing for me to be able to preach today. Um, and I don't know about you, but I have been blessed this week, um, even amongst all this stormy weather that we've been having. Um, I've been blessed both in my preparation time for today, um, but also in our time uh, together on Wednesday night, if you got to be here for that. Um, you know, I just want to say I am so hopeful and excited about the ways that God is at work in our church, amen, um, both in the lives of the individual members here and in the shaping of our church body uh, together. And I have no doubt that God is building us into a true spiritual household, like Deborah talked about. Um, we didn't even plan that. <laughs> um, yeah, the Apostle Peter, he, he says that we are living stones, um, and we make up the household of God. And so it is true for us, City Fellowship, that we are living stones. Um, each of our individual lives are building blocks in the family of God. And each piece, each piece is necessary. Okay? In seasons like this, when we are being tested, and we are being tested, um, we're being tested to make sure that we are sturdy and fit for the job of being a living stone in God's house, making sure that we are solid in our substance, ready and able to support the walls and the pillars and the roof and the doors of God's house. This is the reason that God tries us in order to solidify us and to make us ready and able for the eternal life that he's apportioned to us. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say, thanks be to God that we are not alone in forming this house. Christ himself is the cornerstone of the household. While we, living stones, make up the form of the house, all of its ability to stand rests on Christ as the cornerstone. So without him, we are a pile of rubble. So thanks be to God that Christ is there. He's at the cornerstone. <clears throat> so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to walk in this season um, hopeful and eager uh, to grow into the person that God wants you to be, um, to be formed into your true self in Christ so that you might discover even more how you fit into the household of God how you can be a solid living stone forged on the solid foundation of Christ, the Word of God. This is God's desire for you. And, and while that sometimes can be a painful process, it is ultimately a joyful process. And it's for your good. And it's for my good and the good of all of our brothers and sisters. 
And so today I have the task of, of building up our household just a little bit more uh, by preaching God's word and with God's grace, hopefully reminding us of God's desire and vision uh, for our church and for our individual lives. Um, and I'm thankful uh, that I get to preach this week from 1 John. Um, the Apostle John has always been my favorite uh, writer in the Bible. Uh, his writings and his perspective uh, have always meant so much to me, and his unique voice has always resonated with me through the years. Um, and I know Russ introduced our series and introduced John a little bit last week, um, but I want to continue to paint uh, a picture of John for you today. So if you'll humor me to start us out, uh, here are some fun facts about the Apostle John. <laughs> Good. Uh, John, uh, you may know this, throughout the church uh, history, he, he, he's had many names. He, he's been um, the Apostle John, St. John, um, John the Elder, John the Evangelist, John the Beloved. Um, according to tradition, John uh, was the youngest of Jesus' disciples, probably in his late teens or early 20s when he started uh, following Jesus along with his brother James. Um, so he was a young guy. Uh, as Russ talked about last week, uh, throughout John's gospel account, he's known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I promise is not arrogance, even though it may sound that way. Um, no, he just he had a special relationship with Jesus, and you can see that throughout uh, his gospel account. They are very close. Um, and John's gospel account gives a very different kind of perspective of Jesus' life and ministry, um, different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. Basically, just means that they tell similar stories to each other or even the same stories. Um, and John gives a different perspective, most likely because John tells his own eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry. He was actually there with Jesus um, when he was on earth. Um, and this was written some 60 years after the events took place. Just imagine that. So when we read John's writings, we're reading someone who was very close to the person of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Um, also, get this. According to tradition, John was the only disciple that made it uh, to live to an old age and die of natural causes. The only one, every single other disciple was killed for their faith. Can you imagine that? And John's long life was not just because he happened to fly under the radar of Christian oppression uh, throughout his life, no. Um, according to early uh, Christian writer Tertullian, and I hope this is true because it's just too cool, but this is extra biblical, so take it with a grain of salt. But um, according to Tertullian, uh, John was actually sentenced to death by uh, the Roman emperor Domitian. Okay, The story goes that John was sentenced to death for his faith, and part of his sentence, he was wheeled out into a coliseum in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, and, and there he was going to suffer his martyrdom. And his death sentence, I think, was a little unusual, even by those days' standards, okay? 
rather than being crucified or stoned or beheaded or run through with a sword, if those weren't bad enough, John was to be killed by submersion into a vat of boiling oil. Okay? Nasty stuff. Creative, but nasty. And so they did this to John. They plunged him into a vat of boiling oil. And when they pulled him out, not only was he not dead, he had suffered miraculously nothing from the boiling oil. And so it is said that because Domitian could not kill him, he had to exile him to the island of Patmos, where John lived the rest of his life and wrote his gospel account and the book of Revelation, and these letters that we're looking at, um, his letters to the church. And so I hope that story is true um, <laughs> because it is so cool. But whatever the case, we do know that God miraculously preserved John's life um, so, that, so that we could have his writings, which all came uh, from this period at the end of his life on the island of Patmos. And so I am thankful for that. But the reason that I tell you all of this is that um, I want you to understand that, that uh, as you hear John's words in this passage today, um, realize that you're hearing words from a person that lived a long life in the Lord. Throughout his long life with Christ, John learned to listen to God. He allowed God's voice to shape his inner and his outer life. John allowed God's word to reveal who God is in him and through him. John did this by being tirelessly attentive to the subtle voice of God through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is the heart of John for us, that we would know God. And that's my heart for you and me today, that we might know God more fully through St. John's witness of Jesus Christ. So, if you are willing and able, please stand with me as we hear the Word of God. The Word of God proclaimed through his friend, his disciple, St. John the Apostle, the Evangelist, the Beloved, the Elder, or as I like to call him, the Survivor of Boiling Oil. Turn with me in your copy of scriptures, if you have it, um, to the first chapter of 1 John, beginning in the fifth verse. It says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous one. And he is the expiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly love for God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, today, a sermon in two parts. Um, first, we'll see that John is revealing to us who God is and how we can be in relationship with him. And second, we'll see uh, how John outlines for us his method for cultivating that relationship with God. Um, so to start us out, in the first few verses of our passage, we see that John is setting up a metaphor, a metaphor that he employs throughout his letter and throughout, really, the rest of his writings. And as we know, um, metaphors are very helpful in theology because talking about God is so difficult. God transcends us. He transcends our speech, what we say about him. And the truth of God is always so much more than the bare facts about God. So metaphor, metaphor is a helpful tool when trying to communicate something true about God. And I think, I think that's because the substance of who God is is found in that subtle nuance of language when we speak something true that resonates with us. If the Spirit of Christ dwells within you, you just know it in your bones when something true is said about the Lord. Amen? And we hear our brother speak truth to us in verse 5 when he tells us, This is the message that I heard from him, and I proclaim it to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is a powerful metaphor that John used, like I said, throughout all of his writings, really, uh, to tell us about who God is, to tell us what God's character is like. He even speaks this in another place profoundly in his gospel when he says that in Jesus is life, and Jesus' life is the light of all mankind. His light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John sets up a dichotomy between light and dark. The light of God in Jesus, in the darkness of the world, in the devil. One part of this dichotomy that is very important for us to get is that this means God is good and there is no evil in him at all. For some, it is all too easy to believe that God exists, okay? but is often much more of a challenge to believe that God is good. After all, there are many 
reasons. There are many things to despair at in the world. The suffering, the suffering of human beings is in itself overwhelming. And it can cause us to believe that God does not care. It can cause us to believe that God has abandoned us. Have you ever felt that God has forgotten about you? If you look at Psalm 77, um, the psalmist here is wrestling with that very question, wondering, has God forgotten? He says, Lord, you, you hold my eyelids open. I can't sleep. I'm so troubled I can't speak. I consider my past. I consider the days of old, and I remember the years long ago. And I commune with my own heart in the night. I meditate and I search my own spirit. And here's what comes out when he searches his own spirit. It's a question. Will the Lord spurn me forever? And will I never again be in his favor? Has God's steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious with me? Has God cut off his compassion because of his anger? And I say, the psalmist says, it is my grief to say this, but the right hand of the Lord has changed. It's changed. This is the cry of the psalmist in the deep despair that he's feeling. I wonder, have you ever struggled like the psalmist to believe that God has any concern for the suffering that you feel and see in your life? If you've ever felt that way, I tell you, Christian, you must, you must believe our brother John when he assures us. Even in the midst of all the pain and the suffering that John experienced, even amidst the death of every single one of his friends, his fellow disciples, John knows he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is good and in him there is no evil at all. And he, John has the authority of a long history of Israel to attest to that fact. And in fact, if you keep reading in Psalm 77, the psalmist comes to this realization. He realizes that God has been present all along, even in the suffering and the turmoil. But it's God's way to walk through the turmoil with you, through the tribulation with you. It's God's path to go through the floodwaters of judgment and suffering. And that even though we may not feel like we see his footsteps beside us, he leads us by the hand like a shepherd leads his flock. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, follow John's lead and believe that the character of God is goodness. John's metaphor also tells us many other things about God's character by contrasting this dark and light. 
And it's, it reveals a lot from just the things that we see in the world around us. Um, darkness in the world hides, but lightness in God reveals features of the life in Christ. Darkness in the world dulls, but lightness in God sharpens the colors that make up the family of God. Darkness in the world deadens, but lightness in God illuminates the contours that give shape to the Christian life. Darkness in the world depresses, but lightness in God awakens the mind of the children of God. Ultimately, I think the darkness of the world pulls us into ourselves, inward, inward. But the lightness of God drives us outward toward each other. And it reveals, it reveals the truth of our dignity and our loveliness in the light of God's grace by Jesus Christ. Amen. And this is how John tells us that we can have relationship with God. It's by walking in God's light. Verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light. It is so simple that a child can do it. And it takes a lifetime to learn to do it well. So it truly is easy to learn and difficult to master. In a nutshell, walking in the light of God means living toward that which reveals, living toward that which sharpens, illuminates, and awakens. It means living the life of Christ in the world. For the light has come into the world, and the darkness shall not overtake it. It means listening to God and inviting His Spirit to indwell your everyday, mundane, normal life. And luckily, in the rest of our passage, John gives us three essential practices for stepping into the light of God and walking in that light throughout our lives. And if I had to sum it up in a word, I think John's method for walking in the light of God could be called repentance. Repentance is the substance of the Christian life. Light, life in the light of God is a life of repentance. And that word simply means turning away from what is not of God and turning to God through Jesus Christ. So a life of repentance is a life of facing toward God, a life of listening for God, as Christ did. And it should go without saying, but I'll say it. A life of repentance is more art than science. While our scientific worldview might desire a math formula or some simple logic for achieving repentance... True repentance is more like painting a landscape than solving an algebra equation. It involves painting a life washed in the light of Christ. Amen. 
so that we live in such a way that we can reveal, so that we can sharpen, illuminate, and awaken everyone in everything that our lives touch. Simply put, it is, it is living life like a lamp in a dark place. So, our brother John gives us three practices for living a life of repentance. So if you will, look, at, look with me at, at this. Um, picking back up in chapter 1, starting in verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The first practice we see here is the most basic and the most essential for the Christian life. It is to confess your sin. Confession of sin is fundamental to the Christian life because because we are called to live in true reality before God. You see, walking in the light means seeing things for how they really are. Because things are revealed and illuminated in the light of God. So it is impossible to walk in the light of God and deny your sin. Because in the light, be, living in the light means pronouncing what's true. Because you see things clearly. Saying, I have no sin is impossible if you're truly in the light because denial of sin is always, always an avoidance of reality. There is none without sin before a holy God. Amen. Now, you may find yourself righteous compared to another person. You may could pass judgment on another person and claim that you're right and deny guilt because that person is so bad and I'm not as bad as that person. But that is a feeble, feeble exercise before the holiness of God. And there is a long history of people denying their sin throughout the scriptures. This attitude has a name. It's called arrogance. It's called haughtiness. What God seeks from you is the opposite. He seeks humility. And God has always required confession of sin, not because He gets some pleasure from our subjugation, but because denying our sin is self-deception. God desires for us to be honest because He desires for us to be free. Dishonesty is a prison, y'all, and God wants to break you out. Psalm 32 says, When I did not confess my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by a summer day. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, when I did not hide my iniquity from you, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Then 
Then you forgave the guilt of my sin. God is always, always faithful to forgive our sins by the blood of Jesus, if we will but honestly confess them. And Christian confession is not a self-centered kind of confession. Y'all know what this is like? Have you ever seen somebody confess in a self-conscious, self-centered kind of way? Christian confession uh, is different. In Christian confession, the gaze of your eye is always upon Jesus. Confessions end, the reason for it is always an outward and an upward relationship with God through Jesus. It's not about self-actualization. It's not about self-revelation. Now, there is no doubt you will certainly discover yourself more fully and more profoundly than you can even possibly imagine in relationship with Jesus. But the therapeutic dictum to find yourself is a dead-end road when you seek that enlightenment solely in yourself. Confession is the Christian's way of giving ourselves to God in the deepest way that a person can by acknowledging His holiness and aspiring to it. The second practice that we see here in John's letter, um, if you'll pick up with me in chapter 2, verse 1. John says, My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the expiation or the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The second movement for practicing repentance is part and parcel with the first. We confess our sin before God, but we also must receive our forgiveness our atonement in Christ. We must believe by faith that Jesus has defeated our sin before God. Now, accepting forgiveness in Jesus is different than recognizing your need for it. How many of you know that you can realize that you need something, but you're not willing to receive it? I know this all too well, y'all. It is confession time. I have been realizing for years that I need to go to the gym. <laughs> I, I need to get on a workout routine, y'all. Uh, and I know some of y'all will scoff at this because you probably see me as a you know, strapping young lad. Um, <laughs> but I am in my 30s, and I can already tell y'all, my body is not bouncing back like it once did. And I suspect that it's probably not going to get any better the older I get. Now, I know, I realize, I have an intellectual awareness of my need to go work out. Courtney tells me all the time, your heart needs to be exercised, and it's true. But listen, I say it proudly, I don't want it. I, I, there is nothing I hate more than working out. 
I don't have time for it. I don't have space for it. I just can't do it. And I've tried in the past, y'all. Listen, you know, some people say you just need to get into it and you get into a routine and then you start to love working out. It does not work for me. I've been there. I've been disciplined for months and it never gets easier. Never. As you can see, my heart is a little bit hard at this point. You see, I know I need to exercise. I realize I need it. And I've even confessed my sin before my wife and before all you fine people here. But I still can't receive the solution to my problem. My heart is going to have to be softened to it. In the same way, we can know that we need forgiveness. And we can even know our sin intimately and feel guilty for it. And at the same time, not receive the atonement that we have in Jesus Christ. So in this practice of repentance, this motion of turning to God and facing him full on, that, that is re- receiving. That's accepting our forgiveness. That's an act of receptivity to God. God is reaching out to you, and you have to be willing to receive him. More than just admitting our sin and leaving it there, uh, we have to be willing to receive his forgiveness and all that it entails. You might ask about all this language about atonement and expiation and propitiation. Um, These are serious church words, and they have some serious theology behind them. But put simply, they are ways of talking about uh, the fact that Jesus has stepped in to make us right with God. Okay? They are all ways of talking about how Jesus has made amends in our relationship with God. Whereas we had a debt to pay because we have failed in a real way in our relationship and our obligation to God. Jesus has paid that debt and he has brought us into good standing with our creator himself. Now there are many different theories of atonement, all of which are based in the Bible and express a constellation of biblical ideas and, and, and are drawn from biblical passages. And if you grew up, like a lot of you did, um, I'm sure, in the evangelical Calvinist Baptist kind of tradition, you're probably very familiar with one theory of atonement, that of, wait for it, penal substitutionary atonement. But more simply, the motif of exchange or satisfaction. You probably remember learning this in Sunday school. Christ has died in your place to satisfy God's wrath, the wrath that was meant for you. He took your place on the cross of Calvary and died the death that you deserve so that you can live eternally through him. And let me say that is gloriously and wonderfully true. The Bible affirms this theory of atonement and it is powerful for understanding how Christ has saved you and me. And we should remember that this is one aspect of a multi-layered, multi-dimensional reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done to save you. We say it a lot here at City Fellowship that 
one of the reasons we're pursuing the multi-ethnic vision of the church is because life in Christ is, is a beautiful multi-sided gem that can be looked at from many different angles. And we need each other. We need each other's experience, each other's culture, each other's traditions, worship styles, in order to be able to more fully grasp who God is. And I'm saying that we need various understandings of atonement in order to more fully understand how Jesus is saving you. Yes, substitutionary atonement is wonderfully true. And it must be understood in tandem with other theories of atonement. This is necessary so that you don't get a lopsided theology. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of the different theories of atonement. However, John does allude to one other in this passage. Christ is the saving atonement for our sins personally. So Christ did suffer in your place, Christian. He took your sin and death upon himself and suffered the ultimate death so that you do not have to. He has traded places with you. Amen. And John also says that this expiation is not for our sins alone, but for the sins of the whole world. This is the motif of Christ as the victor over the powers of darkness, over the powers of sin in the world. He is the light which overcomes all the darkness of the world. He absorbs all of the sins of the world into himself on the cross so that all the world may be redeemed to God. He does this because he loves the world, not because he hates it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever shall believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. Amen. So to borrow a saying from one of my favorite artists, David Lynch, if you have a golf ball size understanding of atonement, you're going to have a golf ball size understanding of how Christ has saved you. If you and if you have a golf ball size understanding of atonement, you'll have a golf ball size understanding of what Christ wants for you. We need a much, much larger understanding of how God has saved us and where he is taking us in this redeemed life. Where Christ is taking us in the redeemed life. This is the final movement in the practice of repentance. And we see John explain it here in the last verses of our passage. Pick back up with me, chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we may be sure that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, love for God, is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the way that Jesus walked. 
The final movement which completes repentance is walking in holiness by obeying Christ's commands. Now, this is not a prescription for law-keeping, as though we have to make our sacrifices and obey commandments a la the Old Testament in order to gain favor with God, but rather it's an admonition to live like Jesus lived. So the question is, how did Jesus live? That's a big question. To start to answer it, Jesus lived a truly human life, a truly righteous life. And if you want to see that exemplified most fully, read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus lays out his vision for a truly human life in these teachings. He does not abolish the moral rabbinical law handed down through the history of Judaism, but rather he goes above and beyond it. He calls us to live a moral life beyond what the letter of the law explicitly requires. He calls us to live with a purified heart, not just with a restricted hand. Jesus' call on your life is to live in peace and purity with your neighbor. Jesus also lived completely in tune with God the Father. He lived a life of listening to God. It is not enough, it is not enough to practice the activities or the requirements of the law, even those found in the Sermon on the Mount. But we have to enact them through Jesus' spirit with a heart that is joyfully in submission to God the Father, listening, listening by His Spirit for direction and guidance to live a glorifying life. We must practice His commands with a full understanding that we are utterly dependent on Christ for righteousness before God. If we don't do this, our attempts to live out Jesus' commands are going to amount to a works-based race for salvation. We must depend on the grace of Jesus and nothing else. This is how we can be sure that we know Christ if we keep His commandments. And our brother John tells us later in his letter exactly what Jesus' commandments are. He says it very simply in chapter 3, verse 23. This is God's commandment, that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. There's nothing else that's required for righteousness before God. This is the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. John says it another way in his gospel account where he quotes Jesus. He says in chapter 15, verse 10 of his gospel, um, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in me, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abided in him. True faith in Jesus means abiding in him and loving one another. You see, abiding in Christ, loving God, and loving one another are not two separate things. They are not even two sides of the same coin. They are the same thing. 
Loving God and loving your neighbor are two expressions of the same truth. Jesus tells us in Mark 12, 29 and 30, that the greatest commandment of the law is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All of the rest of the law and the prophets depend on those commandments. Yes, brothers and sisters, love for Jesus and love for one another are inextricable. You can't have one without the other. John makes this clear in the last, one of the last passages of his gospel account in an exchange between the apostle Peter and Jesus. Um, about to wrap up, but if you would, turn with me to... Uh, The Gospel of John, chapter 21. Chapter 21, uh, starting in verse 15. This is after Jesus has been crucified, Um, he died, he was buried. And then he rose from the grave, miraculously, and he spent some time with his disciples. Starting in verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. A second time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him again a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus knew that Peter loved him. But Jesus was teaching Peter that it is impossible to love God without tending to, feeding, caring for, loving God's children. So, church family, when you love your brothers and sisters, you are loving God vicariously through them. When you love God, that love is expressed in loving others, especially, especially the poor and needy, especially those who have been pushed to the margins of our society especially those who have been deemed unworthy of love, especially these, because it is among the poor and the needy that Jesus placed himself. And that is precisely where he wants to, us to place ourselves. So the heart of obeying Jesus' commandments, the center of it, It's to love those the world says are unlovable. 
and to wash the feet of those who are suffering. And this, brothers and sisters, is the only kind of worship that God wants from us. It's the only kind of worship that he'll receive from us. May we aspire to it. May we fulfill our calling in Christ by understanding who God is and living a life of repentance to walk in his glorious light so that, so that our lives may shine forth light of Christ into the darkest places of this world. May it be so for us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.